All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here with uh, Jamie York again, and we're going to continue our conversations regarding math and the state of math and modern education. Um, how's it going? I'm doing very well. It's uh, middle of the summer here in Colorado, and have been enjoying some spectacular weather and um, going for some hikes. I happen to be um, gifted uh, with the fortune of living in a very beautiful part of the world. A uh, little different Absolutely. than where you live, a little different than where you are, Mark, for sure. Uh, well, beautiful in our... a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We have our natural beauty, but over here, uh, a mountain would be uh, shocking. So True. I, and... let me, I covet what you have and maybe a little bit you like the beach. I'm not sure. Yeah. Once a year or so, I need to make sure I get to go see what the ocean's like, because to go to the ocean's a long way for me and to go, for you to go to the mountain is a long way. So it's good to have a little bit of each, but I'm more of a mountain man for sure. Well, I may look like a mountain man, but uh, I would say that uh, for me, the beach is a beautiful place to recharge. I don't know. Nature in general. Don't you agree? It's a place to recharge. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, you know, we've all got our own biographies and whatnot. And, you know, part of my biography is some years ago, I had a sort of awakening regarding my own health and whatnot. And, um, and you know, I, I speak of this often that it, it really, you know, kind of hit me in the face. Wow, my life is really out of balance because, you know, we can we can often get sort of caught up. I, I tend to be somebody who's very task oriented and I can get really caught up into things. And uh, so I can get sucked into the computer and just doing computer heady work, you know, nonstop, you know, for hours on end. And, and right now I happen to be doing a building project and I get, get sucked into that, you know, just, but it's, it's nice to strike that balance. And so I've really worked on that in my life to balance my you know, sort of teaching math, heady work with getting outside and experiencing nature and all of that. And that's so important for our children today, too. Um, you know, I think yes. that's, you know, that we can ask that question, I think. And how is it that our role as parents and teachers to these children in today's world, how is it different now than it used to be? And, and I think we really have to make sure we have to put a lot of consciousness into making sure that these children have healthy, balanced lives. I think in a different way than it used to be. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, it seems like about 120 years ago, but, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood in Connecticut and our, my parents just, you know, they didn't, they didn't fuss over us very much at all or anything like that. We certainly didn't have busy schedules in the way that children have today. They just kind of kicked me out of the house, kind of the way I kicked the cat out of the house today. Okay, get out, go do something. And then the cat comes back several hours later. That's how it was with me, right? We would just go and play in the neighborhood with the other kids in the neighborhood and come back. And it was, I look back at my childhood, I'm very grateful. I had wonderful parents and it was, it was a blessing. It was a very simple sort of not very ostentatious neighborhood, but we had a, a good, healthy life, me and my brother growing up in that neighborhood. And, and I think that's thing, something that's a little bit more rare today. And I just think as parents, it's okay that things are a little bit more structured in some ways. And, but, you know, I think we have to, you know, do what we can to make sure that the kids have a, a good, healthy, balanced life. And, you know, I was just thinking of that today that I, I still have to work on that. And so I make an effort. It's like, okay, I'm going for a hike today. I'm prying myself away the, from the computer and, you know, try to have that in a, 
as a Waldorf educator, that balance between, you know, we say thinking, feeling, and willing between the artistic realm, the thinking realm, the intellectual realm, if you will. Um, and then um, also that physical realm to have all that. And as I get older, I know it's important too. It's kind of both ends, you know, sort of the young, yeah. for the younger children and for us as older, older folk, um, it's really, you really have to make an effort to make sure that you have that balanced life. I think it's good. You know, it's funny that you mentioned balance and most people look at, you know, a binary balance, you know, the way that you look at a scale, but definitely is our modern human life is it's a little bit more of a triangle, isn't it? Those, those three things that pull at us that somehow mm -hmm. make us uh, prioritize things. And it's funny mm -hmm. because I had to talk to a lot of parents and they are extremely uh, worried about children backtracking, especially in their education over the summer. Like you're, you're talking about now yeah. and taking a break and taking a breather. The hardest thing is to convince, you know, parents that not only in the macro year do children need a breather, uh, and spend time outdoors and do other things. But I just think in the day-to-day -day realm, they need to do that. Do you find that uh, you have to deal a lot with children sliding backwards and then catching them up? And, and how does that affect the way you teach math? That's an interesting way to look at it. I was speaking of balance sort of in your day-to-day -day life, you know, over the course of the day to have balance in your life and different kinds of healthy activities you know, for the children as well. But it, you're right, it's also true over the course of the year. You know, oftentimes I'm, I, I feel blessed to live in a place where I really experience seasons, right? To sort of have that annual sense of things and that annual uh, change in your life, I think is also a very, very healthy thing and can be for children as well. Um, I think we are blessed to be in the, the USA in many ways. And, you know, there are other things about the USA that's a little bit strange, you could say, but in general, I've really learned to love this country. And, and one of the things um, that I've learned to really appreciate is we don't feel this need as much as other countries to to really pack in as many days of school in the year as you can. Now, I'm in the Wild West in Colorado where, um, and, and it can vary from one school to the other, but we would have 172 days a year of school. Uh, I know out East, it, it typically is 180 days, uh, it tends to be the standard. And when I was in, I was teaching in, in Holland in Europe um, for a couple of years and there it was 196, I think. And, you know, it seems, places in Asia and whatnot, sometimes they're way more than that. And it's just, no, I think it's good to have, to be able to have a huge out breath in the summer. Uh, that does also put a little bit more, um, you could say a little bit more of a burden on the parents because we, need to, we have these long vacations. You need to figure out what to do with your kids to, to have mm -hmm. them, you know, have some good meaningful activities, but, you know, be it some sort of summer camp and, you know, or something just for them to have a little bit of a different change of patients. Good. And, you know, do they slide back over the summer? You know, do they forget the math that they learned? Of course they do. But as a Waldorf educator, I say, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm fond of saying this idea that, um, that forgetting is part of learning. You know, I yes, used to have is. this, I, I used to have this strange idea in my head that if I was successful as a teacher, if I was successful, if I were successful as a teacher, then I could give a lesson to my students, perhaps, you know, an entire um, unit or 
particular topic over the course of several days. And if I did it well, that the students would learn it well, it would be testable, and they would never forget it. And I've come to really realize that that's so unreasonable. I mean, even for the brightest kids, it just doesn't make sense, right? That forgetting is part of learning. It's an interesting thing to learn something permanently, you know, permanently maybe is not exactly the quite the, the, the right word, but to get to the point where you have mastery, you need to forget it three times and bring it back into your head. And so, I don't know what the topic could be. You could choose it, but let's just imagine a math topic where, you know, as a teacher, this is a topic that is important, that we want them to know this particular topic and have particular skills associated with it well into the future. Take fractions, for example. So they learned fractions in fourth grade. It seemed that they were kind of getting the idea and doing okay with it. Um, and now here we are after the summer going into fifth grade and many teachers would be kind of concerned if they, you know, then quizzed their class and say, well, remember this from last year? I mean, maybe you had that particular class last year or maybe you didn't. If you're a homeschool parent, maybe you, you remember quite well doing this lesson with your, your child and you're just horrified that they've seemed to have forgotten all of it. And, and I, and I remember being a teacher and I, I think it was a, uh, an eighth grade class. I taught them in seventh grade. I, I remember this class and let's just imagine that it was percents or something. And I had taught them percents in seventh grade and I probably began it in sixth grade. And so here am I yeah, in eighth grade. And, and I said, okay, now we're going to start our percents unit for eighth grade and put a, uh, and, and basically said, do you remember this? And, and they all said, no, what are you talking about? I don't even remember what a percent is. And I just remember feeling this, this sense of deflation. I was just so, so um, depressed about it. Oh no, these kids, I must not be a good teacher. They didn't, they haven't remembered what I taught them. And, and then of course they, they liked me as a teacher and they saw that and they thought, oh, I must not be a very good student either. And, and I came to realize, you know what? I finally realized it's okay. And suddenly, so then in the future, I had a very different reaction to that situation and, and instead said, yeah, of course you've forgotten it, right? That's normal, it's part of learning. And you know, the, the students didn't feel bad about it either. And then within a few minutes, they're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember this now. And you know, maybe they do a couple of practice problems or and within a couple of days, they're right back to where they were. And then you can kind of build over on that. And, that was a helpful thing to me when I realized, you know, forgetting is part of learning. To remember something, to really get to the point where you know something, you need to forget it three times. And that's true with something like fractions, maybe even more than three times. Fractions in particular, it's true. Um, yeah, that happens yeah. a lot with me as well. Are you familiar with the concept of a Leitner box? No, what is it? So it's a cool way of learning. I'm uh, a bit of a linguist. I speak uh, three languages and I had to learn a fourth one as an adult. I learned three as a child and it's a little bit easier to learn languages when, you're, when your brain is, when your brain plasticity is open to languages. That's very adult, true. Oh, we have prejudices. So I had to learn French more than conversationally. Now, Lightner Box is, you could take anything that you need to memorize. And the concept is forget to learn. And what you're actually strengthening isn't your ability to memorize things, but your ability to recall things. Yes. So you would take 
something like vocabulary words or math facts or could be the bones in the body, could be anything. You group them into this box and you simply flash them. And, and did I get that? If I got it, I put it in the back of the box. If I didn't get it, it goes to the front of the box and it's reviewed every three days. So you are pausing. You're not trying to memorize everything every day. You're taking the things that you know and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to be able to recall that and pushing it out into the future. And then you're taking the things you need to memorize or the things you need more work on and working on them every three days or so. And so that, that's the concept of a Lightner box. It was very useful to me uh, to always think, well, I need to forget in order to learn. Yeah. So it's the same exact thing you're saying. It's so insightful. And it's, it's good for parents to understand that there are modalities to help, but it's even better if they just relax and realize that it's everyone catches up. All these. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing you shared because I also have, um, I would not refer to myself as a linguist, but I've had to learn two other languages other than English and both of them in my uh, adult life. And it was harder as you got older, for sure. But I did a very similar thing with flashcards, a very similar system to what you just described. Um, and it's also the same, same sort of recommendation that I give to parents for their children to learn their multiplication facts. Now, I don't say to begin with the flashcards. There's a whole nother, I won't go down that road too far, but if it gets to the point, usually by the end of fourth grade, I, I hope that they can learn their arithmetic facts and third grade, that's kind of the, the high level goal is by the end of third grade. And then of course, in fourth grade, we're ha having to review that, et cetera. And then it, flashcards may be helpful towards the end of the fourth grade for a lot of children. But if you are going to do flashcards, I've often said, you know, doing it once a week just isn't going to do it. You know, you, it's something you got to, you got to isolate those ones that you need to work on. And it's what you referred to with that box. Some go in the back, some go in the front. These are the ones we need to work on. And, and if you do that in a systematic way, you can, that can really be helpful, but it's certainly harder the older you get. There's that window of opportunity in mathematics for the memory. I mean, third graders are extraordinary in their ability to remember things. It's just amazing. It's amazing how the brain changes in its capacities over the years. And you, you mentioned just, you know, for, to learn, to, uh, to learn a new language when you're five years old. We had that experience when we did move to Holland and my daughter was five. Astounding how she just soaked it all in with no effort and learned the language as opposed to her old father. who was I was having to study so hard, use flashcards, computers, all of that. Right. And so the, our brains were working very differently. And then of course, in third grade, that ability to, to really learn things by heart to memorize is really and in third grade is the time to do that sort of thing. And then, you know, there are other things that end up, you know, I often comment on, on a student's ability or their growth in terms of thinking mathematically, logically, all of that kind of higher level mathematical thinking. It's astounding how much that develops, you know, that incredible growth in the way that a two or a four-year-old is learning language. Well, the way that an eighth grader or a ninth grader, eight, between eighth and 10th grade, that ability to learn to really think mathematically at a higher level is astounding. The difference between somebody entering eighth grade and then, you know, say two years later, what their ability is, it's extraordinary. So it's always fascinating to see how the brain develops in certain ways at a later time. 
you know, and, and yeah. later in life, of course, later in life, you know, one would hope that somebody really develops this capacity for judgment. You know, we all know that Ooh. we all know that teenagers oftentimes don't have really such good judgment with things. And then hopefully, and there's, I think, some wisdom to it, isn't it? That, you know, the president of the United States has to be 40 years old because we trust that they have developed a sense of judgment that's higher you know, than somebody who may be perfectly intelligent, extraordinarily intelligent, but 25, 30 years old, maybe they're not quite there yet in terms of judgment. It's fascinating, the human brain, isn't it? It's fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned logic and that's math, isn't it? Isn't that what really our ability to reason is a mathematical proposition? And you're not using math when you're trying to figure out a way through a non-math problem. However, if you have these concepts, these embedded in you, and you've practiced them, then decision-making becomes a whole different thing as an adult, as an eighth grader, ninth grader, 10th grader, you know, all the way through high school. But I do believe that uh, that's really where modern teachers, may not teachers, let's say just modern, the idea of modern education somehow has taken that very deep concept of reasoning out of play. And, you know, they're taking tests, they're memorizing certain mathematical concepts, they're building on math in a very, uh, uh, you know, with a, with a syntax, you know, you start with one type of math, you move on to another type of math. And so many people don't move on to that math that's really fun because they get stuck at one level. Do you have a prescription to help people get beyond that? Yeah, that's an interesting, a few things go through my mind. My mind's turning as you're speaking here. But, um, you know, one of the things that at one point along that you had asked about, or you had mentioned that, um, that math, or where my mind went, is that math oftentimes is separated out. You said something like, well, you're not doing really math when you're solving something or whatever. You know, it begs this question of, well, what really is math? When are you doing math and when are you not? And and I just, I've come to feel more and more the longer that I've taught that all of these subjects, they have so much in common. You know, one, once upon a time I was teaching an SAT course to my students and I came to realize that the English section of the SAT test was really uh, had a lot to do with logical mathematical thinking and and the math part had a whole lot to do about language that was a lot more related to all this than you would first imagine and so looking at this from a higher level perspective as an educator i'm hoping to develop certain capacities in my students you know it's all about healthy development isn't it right yeah and and, and by experiencing music by experiencing art by experiencing drama, there are certain things that you're developing within the child that are so helpful in terms of their overall character development. And, and that's, you know, for those subjects. And yet there's a whole lot of overlap that we wouldn't necessarily think at first glance. And so I do think that, sure, we tend to think, well, if I want my child to become a good thinker, that math is the key to do that. And then they might add, well, maybe science too. And then, well, I think it's really just about every subject. We're learning how to think. And, and this, uh, this idea too about, 
well, I want my child to be artistic. What does that mean? Well, I want them to be creative. Well, what does that mean? And, and, and it's not just with this subject or the other, you know, we tend to think of the creative subjects like, well, I'm teaching poetry or music or art, but mathematics also should be creative because that's what it's like to be a human being for sure. And so, you know, we're teaching, we're, we're developing these capacities through different subjects in all these different ways. Uh, and we're back, you know, we're swinging back in our conversation back to this idea. What does it mean to be a healthy human being and, and the balance and all of that? And and now I've lost track of your original question. <laughs> I got off on a tangent there, right? Um, well, what we, I guess the, the prescription of what do you do to instill a sense of both in the parent and the child, because I think it's a team. I find that with other topics, uh, a tutor might be enough. But in some instances, I've learned that mathematics bleeds into the home, especially in the early and in the, in the younger grades. So now it becomes, you know, most people are not versed at teaching math. You're an expert at teaching math. And sometimes all the parents need is the ability to sit back and say, well, are they on track? Are they not on track? And how do you do that without killing the love of learning by constantly assessing them, you know, yeah, you know this, yeah, you know now, now I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you said these words, but that's where my mind went. You, you can get lost in the weeds, can't you? Oh, yeah. Right. And we tend to with with mathematics and it can happen a little bit with other subjects. But I think mathematics in particular, actually, we get so incredibly focused you know, and, and to some degree, it's coming out of a place of anxiety and fear. We become so incredibly focused on this idea. I want my kid to be good at math. I want my kid to be good at math. And, you know, we do that with reading too. I want my kid to be, you know, a good reader. I want my kid to be good at writing, etc. But in mathematics, if we, if we set our, you know, it's, it's this way in life, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. if we have a particular goal in mind, it could be one of those things that you can't get there directly. You know, if, if we want our kids to be good at math, well, the first thing is, what do we mean by that? And usually without question, that means, well, if they're going to be good at math, that means they're good at solving math problems. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means they can do their homework, you know, that they were given. That means they can, you know, do well on their tests and, you know, may have something to do with standardized testing if you're in the public school system. And that's a whole nother conversation, you know, the damage done by standardized testing and that whole culture. But you know, I've, I've come to realize that to get good at math, to get good at those skills, sure, that's a good goal. I want my, you know, use fraction example again, I want my child to, you know, certainly by the time they're in the middle school and I, I want them to be good at fractions. I want them to be good at percents. It would be unfortunate if they're in high school and they can't do basic fractions for sure. But to get there is, it's an interest, I've found it to be very interesting that to, to just drill them on that thing, to have them practice, 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 that sort of thing, oftentimes does not work. Hmm. In fact, I've heard European math teachers look at what we do in the US, and you know, this has been known for a very long time that the way we teach mathematics in the US is actually does not seem to be effective. Or if, if you look at, I don't know what the latest stats are, but I don't think it's changed much if you compare 
um, how we are doing in the U.S. in terms of mathematics education to other countries, we're often way down the list. That begs the whole question, well, how are they, what are the metrics they're, they're using for that? What does that actually mean? Sure. Right. But to get to the point where they're skillful, where they can do what we would normally identify as math problems with a, a fair bit of confidence and mastery, to get to that point, well, it's not just practice. These, again, European math teachers look and say, why are you practicing that much? And, and I have to agree that when you, if you find as a teacher, as a parent, if you're homeschooling, that you're having to have your child practice too much a given skill, if, it, if they're having to practice too much to get it, then something's not quite right. So what do you yeah. do? What do you do? Well, that's where this whole approach that I've, you know, I, and, and believe me, this is not something that I've, you know, I'm the sole math teacher in the world that's figured this out. But if they learn through discovery, if they learn through experience much more so, then they're much more likely to remember it. It's going to have meaning for them. It's going to have context and they don't need to practice as much. I didn't say they don't have to practice at all, but you're not going to have that situation where they're just practicing things and practicing things until they finally remember it. I mean, it's kind of a silly example, but you know, if you're just trying to remember numbers, phone numbers out of a phone book of a list of a hundred people, that's going to be quite a difficult task because it has no meaning or context. You're just memorizing random numbers. But if those numbers, if those formulas, if those mathematical processes, for instance, in order to do a problem are not just random, but instead there's something that you, that you experienced from a process of discovery, then that gives it meaning to you and you're, you don't have to practice it as much. So that, that was an interesting moment in my teaching career when I realized that too, having to practice too much is, is actually a sign of concern. And so mm. what do we do? We need to do the discovery. We need to do to give, to develop, to create these experiences for our student students whereby they experience true problem solving. I mentioned a bit ago, oh, we want our students to be good and adept at doing math problems, but there's a big difference between solving problems and problem solving. Problem solving, again, is you may have heard me say this before, but problem solving is when you don't know what to do, that you're going into this realm of the unknown, and it opens up the possibility of creative thinking, and it also helps to develop that higher level of mathematical thinking. And, and, and that, to me, once we can do that, then other things, the skills work can fall into place more. And, and then the most important thing of all is to, and, and I say this all the time, it's hard to imagine somebody asking me to talk about math where I don't mention this, you know, these three things. The, sure, skills are important, but more important is the thinking. And then the most important thing at all of all is, is this interest and enthusiasm for learning, right? Your relationship oh, yeah. to math, that's huge. Right, I think so, that's where your 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 insight about discovery uh, that's the that's the 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 tonic for that final uh, engine that drives love of learning over and over again. Because if you're discovering things, it also the brain's plasticity is handled in a different way. When the sense of wonder is initiated, suddenly, oh, you know, a lot of people try to get math, and I think that's a hard way to go about it because if 
you don't get it, you can get caught in a loop where, uh oh, now it's, I, I don't get it, and, and you spiral. Whereas if the discovery of it comes from various modalities, storytelling, the, you know, the working on those skills, it, it, it can be a big, big difference in a, a child's life. And you don't need to assess that because you witness it. You, you don't put that on test. Right. Do you, do you think we test our kids too much? I mean, the question is, you know, who is we? Do we in our general education in this country? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I'm not, I, I always feel like I have to say this, but I'm not blaming teachers for this, but it's part of the system. Right. And, and this is part of the beauty, Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf Education, you know, I think had this um, very important insight. And it's not unique to him that really the teacher, it needs to be teacher centric. You know, when I first heard that, I thought, what, you know, doesn't it need to be child centric? Well, sure. Ultimately, it's about the children. But in terms of the development of the curriculum, the, the, and the development of a lesson, the development of an entire program that a child is having, it really needs to come from the teacher. There's that creative process. The teacher needs to be able to read the child, the children in front of them and to realize what they need at that given moment. And that's where this idea of, of the education being developmentally appropriate is certainly, you know, very important. Um, but you know, the standardized testing really comes to some degree, don't you think, out of a lack of trust. The system doesn't trust that the teachers are able to do what they ultimately have to be able to do. They have to be able to decide what goes, what the, the child needs to experience in the classroom. What What is it that they need in terms of their learning? And when we take away that, when we don't have that trust, and then the the system is then saying, these are the topics you must teach. I mean, I even remember, you know, and, and I, I have a lot of concerns over the textbooks that students use, right? And, mm. you know, you can have a given school district in a public school or something, and it's like, you will, you, you know, the teacher is told, you will use this textbook. doesn't matter if you like it or not. This is the textbook we've decided you will use. Who made that decision? I mean, that's a whole other question too, right? And then suddenly you're using this textbook, and oftentimes it – it, it, it's, it really, it's a, an example again of this problem where it's so oftentimes these textbooks, you know, more times than not are totally focused on just learning skills. Hmm. Just practice, 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 right? You get a homework assignment, you practice that, and then you get tested on that. And then, oh, by the way, we've got a standardized test coming up and man, what pressure teachers can be under to be able to perform because some, in many cases, the teacher's, you know, the, the teacher's existence, the teacher is the one who's being evaluated. And the students need to be able to perform on that test well enough so that the teacher, you know, ha has a lot at stake. You know, the high stakes testing oftentimes is not that the stakes are on the student, but it can be, for, especially for older students. But oftentimes it's a teacher in the school. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, so, a, yeah I, think we, I, think, I think we do test that kind of testing is way too much um and what about tests do i think tests are a good idea well what do we mean by that there's different kinds of tests so you know you can have standardized testing as i just spoke about and a lot of that is you know that's that can be an appropriate thing i think for older kids in high school but for younger kids i don't see much good coming out of it again it's coming out of a lack of trust of the teacher um do 
teachers, should teachers be testing their students? Yeah, well, if, if I want them to learn a particular skill, then I can see the value of a test. If I want my students to learn algebra in seventh grade, then yeah, having a unit test at the end of a certain amount of lessons that they've had can be, it can bring a nice, um, it can help us to focus if it's a skills type topic. But there are many things that I teach where I wouldn't test them because it's not a skills oriented topic and that doesn't serve a purpose. I found as a teacher in the beginning of my career, I was just giving tests because I thought it was like my duty. You know, right. You feel you had, obligated right. to somehow. And it's also your own ego saying, you know, am I, I, I got to figure out if I'm, am I getting through? I, I think you're right. I think tests are relative to different things. Assessments are very necessary. You've got to be able to sit in front of a student and be able to, you know, find out if they're, if, you know, where, how, how, what their rate of retention is, what their rate of recall is, what their enthusiasm is, so that you can move on, so you can continue to move on. I got an interesting uh, question for you. So you know how we, we, we have science and science, uh, math is very prevalent in science, but science is built upon itself, right? Because you think of biology and biology is about living things and those organisms, but those organisms have a lot of chemistry. So you know, chemistry has a basis in biology and there's sort of steps as you move up through those sciences, there's a natural progression that one informs the other. You know, the periodic table informs uh, the elements. The elements make up, you know, maybe that suddenly it's in the physical world. So all of these topics can, can be a staircase. But when it comes to math, it's not really that way, is it? It's interesting. You know, and, and it's such a, I'm back to that question, you know, well, what do you mean by math? <laughs> you know, right. it's a, it seems like a silly question. Okay, I'm listening to this guy, Jamie York, who's supposed to be some sort of math expert or something, and he, needs, he doesn't know what math is. What's, what's up with that? Um, yeah, and I, I remember that question, you know, when I first started my teacher training, um, my, my mentor instructor said, okay, I want you to answer this question. Take, take a few minutes to write it down. What is math? And it annoyed me. It really annoyed me. I was like, oh, what do you mean? What is math? Of course I know what math is. And of course I couldn't write down anything that was very articulate. Right. And so I've been asking that question for, you know, 30 years since, uh, what is, what do we really mean by math? And, and, and so it is curious. There are so many different fields of math and, you know, back to the idea we said earlier, I mean, math, we can identify it as, as a means, as a type of thinking perhaps. And I think it's just, one of the ways that we help to develop logical thinking, logic isn't just math, or should apply to just about every subject you can imagine, music, art, kind of everything. Um, but yeah, I do think that there are certain things in math that absolutely build upon, one thing builds off the other, um, and, it, and, and you can make a, a progression from one year to the next in a given topic. You know, I can think of percents in middle school. You introduce a little bit of it in sixth grade. You build upon it in seventh grade, build upon it further in eighth grade and so forth. And then there can be these beautiful things that are under the umbrella of math that seem to have nothing to do with anything else. Um, mm. You know, I, I think of one, one thing that comes to mind is group theory or set theory, this idea of different sizes of infinity. 
what in the world could that possibly mean? <laughs> you know, different sizes of infinity. I mean, it's funny in mathematics. There are so many different subjects and topics, and, and many of them seem to be completely isolated from any other field of mathematics whatsoever. But it does have this common link of, I would say, if, if anything, you know, what, what makes something qualify as a mathematical topic? And I would say hmm. to some degree, there has to be, it's a hard question, isn't it? Right? Because oh, yeah, there's, that's, that's there are some things you can think, well, that, that's more science than math. And then, of course, there's this blurry line. You know, physics is, you know, has a lot of math in it. So there's, a, you know, I just taught a 10th grade mechanics main lesson to my uh, academy students. Fabulous thing. And a lot of it is very mathematical, right? But it's it's really under the umbrella of physics. So what what is it that really help makes it so that something qualifies as a math topic. And, and I'd have to say that it has at least an element of what I would call sense-free thinking. Oh, that's it's a beautiful a, it's, phrase. It's, it's an interesting thought, sense-free yeah. thinking, that ultimately mathematics is, you know, the, the basis of it um, has its foundation is rooted in sense-free thinking it's completely separate for the from the physical world and you can say oh come on you know first graders are learning how to count they're counting marbles those are physical things yeah but at some point two plus five is just two plus five it's not goats or marbles or anything else it's a complete abstract concept right and Co concept absolutely you know you're getting to the concept you know and that's the sense-free right. thinking that true pure thinking and this is me as a theoretical mathematician i suppose but pure thinking is it's sense-free thinking and it's a beautiful thing <laughs> i i like that a lot because if you were if i were to tell you okay describe to me math but you can't mention numbers or a consequence of numbers you can't you can't define it for me by saying numbers, that would be a logical loop that doesn't make, you know, you can't define what a number's a number, but it doesn't help you. And then you can't, a consequence of it, you can't say adding up, subtracting, multiplying. So what you're left with is, well, it's a collection of things, isn't it? Yeah, it's a curious thing. Certainly a lot of mathematics does seem to have to do with numbers, doesn't it? <laughs> of um, course. And, and yet, you know, you get to a point, you know, I, I was reflecting upon this with my 12th grade students. You study trigonometry to a high, high enough level and you, you can look at a page of, you know, maybe it's a trigonometric proof or something. You look at it, it's just all symbols, not a symbol number on the page, right? I mean, that's one example, but you right. can either, either take a, a more simple example that most people could relate to, right? You, you look at the tilings of a floor, I mean, who doesn't do this? I mean, maybe you go into a bathroom or a dining room or something and you, you see this tiling and there's just pattern recognition. I mean, how can you not look at it and think about patterns? And of course, those patterns, you know, you could say there's some relationship to numbers, but oftentimes, no, it's just you're trying to see how does one thing relate to the other and what are the patterns here? That pattern recognition certainly is very mathematical, isn't it? Right? Sure, absolutely. Do you think that if uh, a child... Let's say they miss that early window and they don't do those basic skills. They can't skip count. They have problems with their multiplication tables. 
and now you're moving beyond that and you're starting to learn other things. Do you think that you need to really develop those skills very well to move forward? Or can you sort of say, you know, in the modern world, maybe a calculator will take care of adding and subtracting for this person, but let's move on to these other subjects because there, there's so much meaning in uh, percents and algebra and other types of math. No, it's a, it's a very good question, Mark, and I, I certainly get that a lot. And, you know, back in the beginning of my teaching career 80 years ago, however long ago that was, I would, um, I didn't have to concern myself so much with that, that most students coming to me knew, for the most part, knew their arithmetic facts, et cetera. And now it is much more difficult than it used to be, no doubt. I, I, I've gotten to the point where I kind of assume that most students, especially if, you know, they, you know, they didn't have the proper foundation, whatever that might be, they're, they're coming into seventh grade and they really don't know their arithmetic facts. And, and so, um, you know, what, what can you do at that point? Yeah. And it's hard. And, and on a very few, in very few cases, I have seen students at that point of say sixth or seventh grade work on those sort of things. You know, usually people refer to the their multiplication tables, but it's more than that. It's knowing their mm -hmm. facts out of order. It's their subtraction facts. Usually, subtraction is the thing that slows students down the most. Um, and and it, when very very few exceptions, students have not been successful learning it at that stage. There's that window of opportunity I spoke about earlier in this conversation around about third grade. And, you know, so you aim for third grade, you practice it, you review it in fourth grade and reinforce it in fifth grade. And then after that, it's, it, it becomes more difficult. But to answer your question, you know, what do you do with a student like that? Well, I can simply say with great confidence, I've had a lot of really good math students who didn't know their facts in high school, right? in high school that they still didn't know it. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's an ideal situation. I wouldn't wish that for anybody because there are certain times where even in high school, it comes in handy to be able to do mental math. Right. But mm. for the most, and, and I'm always, always astounded to the way that people compensate. And, and this is a thing, you know, and, and although I don't uh, pretend to be an expert in, uh, and working with kids with learning differences. I've had a lot of experience with it. And we have a lot more knowledge now than we used to a couple of decades ago about how students learn and how to help them. But um, I will say this, I, I, I do, I I'm always have been impressed in, in students' abilities to compensate for whatever holes or whatever difficulties they have. They figure out ways to do it. And I think that's still a powerful thing. But yeah, I think students, I think giving them a calculator um, and, and for many students, you know, I, I try to keep with it so that they're doing calculations by hand. I do believe a lot in mental math and in, in students in my math academy, certainly. Uh, we do a lot of mental math all the way up through seventh grade, hmm. you know, but there can be a student for whom doing those hand calculations is not a reasonable expectation. I could imagine for some students, and I have recommended for some students, that they start using a calculator in seventh grade, maybe even sixth grade. But in general, I'd say halfway through eighth grade is a good time to get a calculator to, because you want to keep those, you know, those mental math capacities alive. And in today's world, it, it dies quickly because, you know, in our everyday lives, 
as it, you know, as opposed to the way it used to be where you'd go into a store, you'd have a $20 bill and you'd be calculating, you know, you know, these items that I've bought, am I going to, you know, am I, do I have enough money to cover that? And you'd calculate the change and so forth. You do these calculations yourself before you went to the cashier a long time ago. Hmm. But um, yeah, we don't do nowadays that. we don't do that anymore. And so our number sense is kind of declined. And I think that's one of those things tying again into something we spoke about earlier. What do we need to do as teachers now more than we used to? Well, we need to develop those mental math skills more so than we used to perhaps. Um, but in eighth grade, I give them a calculator. Of course, they're usually, if that's the first time they've had a calculator, they're understandably quite excited. It's like, oh, I don't have to do long division anymore. Great. I can do that with a calculator, sure. But then, you know, all the way through the end of high school, there are times when I say, okay, for this unit, no calculator. I mean, my daughter went to Wellesley College, you know, a great university in Boston, and uh, she took a calculus course. And I was actually kind of pleased to hear that the professor said, no calculator, no graphing calculator, no calculator at all for this course. You know, because I think that professor was, yeah, the professor was kind of getting frustrated with the fact that kids couldn't do anything without, they were so dependent on their calculators. So I think it is good to, you know, remove the calculator from, from most students for certain things and say, you don't, you don't need a calculator for this unit, right? Because you want to use any sort of technology in a way that's really helpful. And so that will be different from one child to the next, how much they might need it. But we do want to make sure that any child isn't overly dependent in a way that's not helpful. Yeah, this is great. I guess it goes back to your very insightful truth of as long as they're motivated, um, they can move forward. You don't need to, you know, take a look at something and say, well, you missed that boat. So now you can't do anything. I think that as long as they're thinking and as long as you continue to creatively bring that spark, uh, most kids will respond and do well moving forward. In other words, you don't miss that math boat just because you weren't strong at one point. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of math. Let's, let's, be, let's be honest here. There's a lot of math trauma out there. Right? Oh, there, yeah. there are a lot of parents that are traumatized from their own experience in math. And, you know, th- this is not a new thing. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, go and say that, well, 100 years ago, the teacher to math used to be better. I don't think that's true. Right. But there are yeah. we, we probably have more attention drawn to these sort of things. Just the word trauma itself is, you know, a bigger word that lives in our culture now. But, yeah, there's a lot of math trauma out there. And, and so this question, it's, it's a real question. What do we do with my, what should I do with my child who's, you know, had this terrible experience with math? You know, whether they use the word math traumatized or not, it's an honest question. What do you do? And again, this ties into what I said earlier. You know, there's a misconception that if we just hammer them with more skills, that'll be the solution. And usually somebody who hates math or is math traumatized or whatever, just giving them more and more skills work isn't going to do it. And so we actually, the way to do it is you need to awaken their interest. You need to awaken their enthusiasm for learning math. And, and that's not necessarily easy, but the way to do that is through interesting puzzles. I mean, there's nothing like a good puzzle, is there? I mean, no, you get absolutely. A good math puzzle that can be really engaging for students. And, and, and that's part of the art of teaching is choosing the right puzzle. I I was just thinking the other day, right, I'm building this sort of guest house. And of course, being who I am, it's like, well, it's got to be a geometric design and all this. And I could talk for the next two hours about that, but it's going to have a spiral staircase, right? 
and Ooh. it's like, okay, it's going to go from the floor to the next floor up to the loft. It's 85 inches. Right. And, and it was a puzzle. And how much of the rotation there's a, it has to be turned out that I think I calculated 144 degree rotation in the stairs and each stair. If you have, you know, if you have too many stairs, then the problem is the turn of each stair is too slight. And so you don't have room to put your foot on the tread does isn't deep enough. And then if you have too few, steps then each step up is too much and once you go past eight inches it's just especially for someone like me who's getting old and i don't want to navigate a spiral staircase where the steps are too big and you know it was a puzzle and you know most people wouldn't look at that and think well that's really math but i mean it's the kind of puzzle that can appear in everyday life but you know it was an interesting puzzle for me and our contractor carpenter to look at and try to figure out and try to make all this work Right. And so if you can give students, I can imagine a student, if they happen to be designing something, even if it's somebody who had been traumatized in math, this is an interesting thing to try to work out. Um, and, yeah, when you know, I was in high school, they taught a lot of uh, uh, drafting, you know, mechanical drawings. Yeah. And you, you had to use math. You had to understand the relationship of scale and and, and you had to draw lines. There was something artistic to it. It was beautiful. I mean, carpenters, a ton of math. Yeah. You know, just using a speed square is a speed square is like an abacus in the hands yeah. of the right, the right type of carpenter. It's kind of interesting that, you know, you mentioned technology and so many people, the answer to my child doing well in, is maybe, well, they got to learn code. They got to do coding. They've got to you know, code something. And, you know, coding has changed a lot since you and I started writing. I don't know what language you originally wrote in, but my my first one was in Pascal. And uh, I, so I probably date you on that. It was it was Fortran. Fortran. Oh uh, yeah. Fortran well, was that, the, the first language that I was actually programming, and this goes way back, and old deck equipment and so forth. And yeah, yeah I mean, I uh, this year when I was teaching my daughter Juliet, we uh, I taught her binary code. And because I felt like it's a puzzle and it's a lot of fun to understand. You mean assembly language? Well, yeah, absolutely. Just uh, ASCII. How, yep. how, oh, yeah. how can okay. you get, how do you get information that is so complex out of just a one and a zero out of, you yeah. know, out of base two? Well, that's something I, I certainly do in eighth grade is number bases and, and binary code and ASCII code. It's, it's fabulous. Yeah, and you and, and you know, base twelve is so per, it's in our lives. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's base sixty four or base eight. Uh, most of your cooking is is done, you know, when when you're you're dealing with those type of numbers and just the concept of base is it's more of a puzzle than it is math because it's a different way of thinking. Oh, and it used to be for the ancient Babylonians, it was base 60. It was kind of a pseudo mm. base 60 system. It's, and we think, right, oh, yes. come on, why would they do that? We would never do that today. Well, guess what? How many seconds are in a minute? How many minutes are in an hour? How many, you, when you uh, take very fine angle measures, you had minutes and seconds. So it'd be 15 degrees, 13 minutes, three seconds or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, couldn't. So is... Go ahead. There's so many things we couldn't do if we didn't explore and have people that thought differently. You know, I'm 
recently, uh, I'm rewatching on Apple, there's uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. No. But it's about, it's all about math. And the protagonist of the book comes up with a type of math that is predictive on large scales. Like you can predict how a society is going to go, but he can't tell you what you're going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. As you get larger numbers, his math uh, allows for this. And the whole concept is we're trying to preserve human knowledge because he predicts that this empire is going to fall, this galactic empire is going to fall. How do you preserve all this knowledge? And they're sitting around the table in one of these scenes and they're talking about, well, how are you going to decide what to preserve? Because you have some people that count with base 10, some people that count with base 12, and some people that count with base 27 because they use their body parts or something. And it is an interesting way of looking at the world. It's nothing, it's not like we couldn't figure it out, but we need to be good at solving puzzles more than we need to be good at math. It's such a great topic you're bringing up because, and it ties into what we were saying earlier, what do you do with children who, you know, are math traumatized, et cetera, that, you know, it's such a great topic at the beginning of eighth grade to do number bases, to study this, because it's deep, really great thinking, and it requires very little, you know, prerequisite mastery of skills. Uh, and so everyone's kind of at the same level. It's a great thing to do. But that, you know, it does remind me, tying into what I, we were talking about earlier, when you do have a child who's math traumatized like that, you know, how do you awaken their interest, et cetera, right? Again, what you don't do is bring them, you don't bring them lots of more skills work. That's not going to do it. But, you, you know, you always need to make sure you're doing great appropriate stuff, hmm. great appropriate stuff. And way too often, you know, you could have a given class of students who are deemed to be, you know, behind and or, or a given individual student who's like, well, they don't have the skills that they should have learned in this grade or that grade or so forth. And they're in a given grade now, let's say ninth grade. And it's like, nope, they're not ready to be doing the ninth grade level stuff because it's too hard because they didn't learn their basic skills. And that's wrong, right? You can absolutely, like if I look at my ninth grade curriculum, you can absolutely have them learn algebra, right? The, the mm. real essence of algebra. And you know, I'm speaking of, you know, we're getting to the point where between a third and one half of all students are somehow diagnosed, if that's the right word, with some sort of learning challenge and so forth. Um, and and I would say most of that is um, can be overcome. For most of those students, it can be overcome. So they can do the ninth grade level as that example. Um, material. So we can do descriptive geometry. You mentioned drafting, descriptive mm, geometry. Yeah. It's such a great thing, developmentally, totally spot on for ninth graders. And algebra, algebra to really get to the, we start algebra in seventh grade, but that ninth grade year of really going deeply into algebra and building up to stuff that's really significant. It's such a great thinking for the ninth grader. And then the other great topic is uh, what I call per possibility and probability, often known by most people as permutations, combinations, and probability. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I remember that. To really go deep into that in ninth grade, it's such a great time to do that. That, you know, how many, you know, just as a simple question, you know, you got a class of, just imagine this, you have 20 people and you got 20 chairs. How many ways can you arrange 20 people into 20 chairs? Right. How Ooh, many ways nice. can you do that? I mean, it's such a great way for ninth graders to to think 
And at the beginning, it's when it ties into what I said earlier too about the difference in the thinking of an eighth grader versus eventually a 10th grader. And at the beginning of ninth grade, the student's thinking is so chaotic. Trying to think hmm. of a problem like that is just so hard for them. And they typically just say random things. Well, 20 people, I don't know, 20 people. It's going to be 20 times 20. That's the answer. No, not that. Okay. Well, 20 to the 20th. Okay. It's that. And they just start saying random things that have the number 20 in it. Right. And it's like, well, no, let's not be random. Let's be thoughtful. Let's think about it really clearly. And you can get to the end of that course and they can start to really see the power of thinking mathematically in a more systematic, you know, meaningful way. And, and, and they can really feel that growth in their mind. Like I was talking about, you know, that, that growth that can happen in a, a child that's like four years old learning language and in the same way a ninth grader to really feel their brain developing in that way and like wow i can now think in ways that just a short time ago i was not capable of and that's a very powerful experience for any kid to be able to experience that and any child can do that now i say any you know of course there are there can be that rare child maybe the two percent that it's not true but when we're, we're talking you know that can be more of a developmental thing in terms of their thinking and and then you have to look at an alternative kind of program that's different but what i'm talking about is you know usually when i have a parent come to me and say well my child's math traumatized they're weak in skills blah 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 there's there's not an issue with their thinking they can get there with proper teaching they can they can have those experiences and really gain a lot from it they just don't have the skills to do, you know, a lot of the tricky stuff that honestly we can avoid and still have them experience the, you know, the essence of the math of that topic and have it be really meaningful for them. That's really nice, Jamie. You know, you mentioned a couple of times age appropriate topics and, and learning and, and teaching. And that just brings to mind to me the the way that we do things in the U.S. is we kind of say, well, everyone in fourth grade is this age and everyone in fifth grade is this age. But at that young, young age, and even as you get older, there are massive differences between, you know, an 11 year old whose birthday is in January and another one whose birthday is in April and so on. And a lot of times we're putting these kids together in, in this situation. I'm sure a lot of homeschool parents uh, might be interested in knowing how much is learning age appropriate to their birthday versus their grade? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and I'd say that it's problematic in a, in a few different ways. It, it can be quite problematic. And I'd say the number one thing that comes to my mind is this race to get ahead. You know, imagine that yeah. there's an exceptionally bright student and here they are in fourth grade. I mean, you hear about these things here. They are in fourth grade. We're accelerating them, moving them up. They're doing algebra in fourth grade, you know, or I mean, it happens. Right. Yeah. Um, or this whole idea of it seems to be that the goal for a high school student is to get as many AP courses under their belt as possible before they graduate high school. What does that mean? What's the purpose of that? Well, AP courses are supposed to be advanced placement. They're supposed to be university level courses. And so we're doing our university education um, in high school for a high school age child. And then, of course, middle school becomes, OK, let's do high school level 
material. And then of course it just goes further and further down the line. So that to me is problematic because the reality is if we have a super bright child and there could be, of course, people listening to this podcast right now, who's like, well, my child's very bright and why not get them ahead? Well, my answer would be, well, what's the rush? If they're bright, they're going to be bright anyway. And they're going to be good at math at some point anyway. And so what's the rush? And oftentimes there's really good math that gets thrown out the window in order to get ahead. You know, I mentioned number bases. Oftentimes I do number bases in, in eighth grade. I do uh, the platonic solids, what's better known, I think, is stereometry. Just really great stuff in my eighth grade curriculum and seventh grade, all through the grades. I do some really great stuff that oftentimes is thrown out the window because we don't have time for that. We need to usually the holy grail that you're trying to get to is calculus. How quickly can we get to <laughs> calculus? That's what it's all about. And so we throw all this really great stuff out the window. All in. So that's my one concern. The other concern can be, yes, we do need to differentiate. I agree with you. You can have a class full of students. It doesn't even have to be a big class. It could be a class of 10 students. And you've got students. They could all be of a similar age, you know, very close to each other in age. But you could have this incredible difference in terms of ability and skill level between the so-called top students and the students that are struggling more. That's true. However, I, I find that it's an astounding thing that in general, if we're doing a good job as a teacher, we're bringing them age appropriate material and we're not overly reliant on and focused on skills, then everybody can take it in at that age in their own way. Give an example of learning algebra for the first time in seventh grade. You know, here we've got students in, you know, with an incredible ability differences in that one classroom and yet the most the brightest kid is just taking it all in because it's like wow this is totally different thinking even though we're not making it really conceptually very difficult it's a new concept and they're just thrilled with it so they're not bored and then you have the student who is you know has a history of struggling with math that is taking it in also surprisingly if we bring it in the right way right now and, and it's a hard thing and i'll just say this i think that it's it, be, it can become problematic by tracking kids into advanced classes and you know non-advanced classes, whatever you want to call that, at too young of an age. And I don't generally advocate doing that before eighth grade. Um, mm. Even in eighth yeah. grade, it's, it's kind of marginal, right? Um, and, and then in high school, it becomes more necessary, I understand. But still, even in high school with the class, the, what I typically would call the non-advanced class, I still want them to experience the great topics of math in their own way, in a way that's appropriate. You know, take calculus to, you know, I, I think it's so great for 12th graders, all 12th graders, including students who, who have struggled with math their whole lives to experience a three week uh, calculus main lesson in 12th grade can be a very powerful experience. And it's totally possible to do it. So every, you're not even dumbing it down. You still get to the essence of what those calculus topics are. And, and it can be a powerful experience for everybody in the classroom. And, and we can do it in a way that it's going to be valuable for everyone. How? Well, why do most students struggle with calculus? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, guess what? It's not the calculus concepts. The calculus concepts are, of course, challenging, but they're accessible to almost anyone. But what makes students fall on their face is that their algebra skills, you know, you have to have pretty advanced, pretty solid algebra 
you know, we can call it pre-calculus, whatever you want to call it. They need to be very adept at trigonometry and logarithms and all these, you know, Cartesian geometry and all this. And oftentimes the skill level, if it's not there, calculus ends up being a nightmare, but it's not the calculus concepts themselves. So I think it's really important that we need to challenge everybody in the right way. Hmm. And that's, that's part of the art of teaching. How do we challenge all students in the right way that's going to be helpful for them? All students need to be challenged. Oftentimes with students that struggle too much, we say, I know the solution. I'll just make it really easy. So I've got these ninth grade students. I'm just going to do simple sixth grade math with them. Well, I mean, it's pointless and it becomes very discouraging and disheartening for them because they know it. They then get the message. You know what? I don't think you're good at math. You can't do grade level math. So we're just going to do easy stuff. Big mistake. Big we need mistake. to build their confidence. And that's a big question into itself. How do we build the confidence of these students? You give them good math, and, and that's the art of teaching, the right kind of problems. That's the right level of challenge, and we help them through that struggle so that then they can look at it and say, wow, I just did something I didn't think I could do. That's how you start to build confidence, and from there you can build things up with positive experiences. Yeah, we're, we're back to that, uh, yeah, the keeping the motivation, keeping that love of learning alive by making, by making it meaningful. I can really tell why you named your entire book "Making Math Meaningful." It's absolutely it's so dead on. It's, it all comes really back to that. On. It all comes back to that, and it comes back to that in life, doesn't it? I mean, what absolutely. Is, you know, what is you know? I, I if if you ever want to, you probably are familiar with this um, Victor Frankel. He's somebody that had a big influence on my life reading his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a psychotherapist, he was like, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. We need sure. to help the, the uh, help our um, client or, um, to figure out where is the meaning in their life. Um, and, and that's what it's all about, is to find that meaning in your life. And so I talk to my students about that too. You know, I, I hope that my math classroom isn't just about math, but it's about learning life lessons and what better lesson to learn that Absolutely. your task here you are a teenager you haven't figured it out yet but part of your task in life is to find something meaningful in your life and i hope i wish you the best on that journey to figure that out because that's that's massive and i think it's i think that's more um important in our world now than ever before meaningfulness in people's lives don't you think that that integrates those three things you were talking about earlier in our conversation, the, the head, the heart and the hands? Don't you think that finding meaning is an integration and we're getting back to balance? I mean, maybe we did this on purpose. Maybe we didn't. But to end this podcast, it's a it's it's a way of thinking about balance that I think. Uh, uses a math forward ideal uh in a non-math way absolutely and it's about connection right how can we connect to each other you know when you're playing music i know you're a musician you're mm -hmm. connecting you're connecting to the person listening to your music and i love to sing i'm not the greatest singer but to be in a choir to connect with each other i mean that's meaningful that's balance in your life isn't it and you know i was out hiking today and you're connecting you know with spirit you know you're out there in the middle of nature connecting with nature it's it's powerful 
Um, and in mathematics, you connect, you know, you have these experiences of connecting through your pure thinking to this concept. It's a very platonic idea. Right? Yeah. And it's a powerful idea. You're, it's about connection. It's about balance. It's about meaningfulness. All of these things. That's what it's all about. And it's not just about learning these skills. Sure, skills are good to learn, no doubt about it. But that's not really what it's all about, is it? I mean, what do you really, there's a good question to end on. Parents, what do you really want for your child? Ultimately, what do you really want for them? What would be, what would it look like to be, to have your child leave 12th grade and to feel they've had a really great education? What would that look like? It's not about learning a whole list of, of skills that appears in some dead curriculum, right? Or passing some test. No, it's, it's much it's... more than that. And those things can come. Sure, we're going to learn skills. Sure, absolutely. In 11th grade, a student should be able to take the SAT test and do reasonably well on it. But that's not really what it's all about, is it? I don't think so. I think that uh, a lot of parents have seen this, uh, I like to call it the treadmill, this treadmill. And they're all hitting that pause button. They're all at least slowing down and they're trying to get off of it in some way. And it's innovative educators like yourself uh, that integrate a whole slew of ideas into a very passionate delivery of education. That is, it's, 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 a, it's a lighthouse. It's a beacon that they can follow. And I hope the parents who listen to this podcast are inspired. I know I'm inspired. Every time I talk to you, I hope we get a chance. Let's talk some more. Would you like to do a couple more of these? That sounds good, Mark. Yeah, I enjoy these conversations very much. Time went by. <laughs> yeah. Quite quickly Can you believe it? Is. Yeah, it's Absolutely. very good. Absolutely. Listen, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, if you're out there and you haven't visited his academy, what's the website again? It's jamieyorkacademy.com. So Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, J-A-M-I-E, jamieorkacademy.com. Great. Well, I'm encouraging everyone to go hit that link. You'll find it in the description of the podcast as well. And I got to say thank you. And let's talk again. Okay. Sounds good. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye.